0: I taught many years, a course at Texas A&M in biblical philosophy.
1: <laughs> and my
0: students would always say to me, which translation should we bring? <laughs> and I would say, I don't care because they're all wrong. It doesn't matter. And that's not because the translator is a liar. So in Italian, you do say the translate is to be treasonous. It's because you cannot take the Hebrew text and translate it into English. So people who are really interested need to take the time to learn the text and how it sets up the world and take the text for what it is not for what you want it to be. So my advice is really with all due respect to English Bibles learn Hebrew
1: How is it going? Welcome to the show. Happy Veterans Day. At least I think this will release on Veterans Day. And if it didn't, I'm leaving that in. And I hope that you had a great Veterans Day anyway. So, last week I had committed to trying to figure out how to make the logo and artwork work on a hat. And I haven't figured that out yet. And so I'm sorry. Still plan to get that done before Christmas. And um, there has been a recent uptick in people over at the store grabbing different things. Head over there. Can I say this at church.com store and see if there's anything that you like. Two other ways that you can support the show, uh, you can go in the show notes to Glow FM or to Patreon.com. Tried Glow last week, we'll see how it goes. It literally is something new, so we're gonna give it a go because back in the day, PayPal didn't work. But Patreon is where it's at. So I'm beginning to try to do writing, and I'm posting those thoughts there. You get early access to the episodes, all kinds of different things happening over there. Love that community. It is by far one of my favorite places. I would encourage you if the show is helping you, you're hearing anything that you like, if you hate the show but you still want it to continue, go over to that portion there at can i say this at church.com, click support or Patreon, I forget what it's called exactly, and click that button. Any dollar amount really does help for the show to continue to grow, and because the show does continue to grow, I cannot express my gratitude enough that uh, those supporters are there, literally the engine that drives the show. So today I am joined by two guests and those are always fun because they're really hard to edit and it's hard to bounce back and forth and I'm gonna have one of the guests back on because I have so much more questions about her story, where she's coming from, which is a beautiful story and I wanna dig further into it, but you will hear from both Nora Speakman and Rabbi Peter Tarlow and we cover a lot of ground. We talk about the fact that I need to learn Hebrew and you probably should too. We talk about translation and living in an empire. Uh, We talk a bit about having multiple jobs and wearing multiple hats and the stress of that. We talk about deconstruction. We really talk about a lot. Love this conversation. I think you will as well. Let me know what you think when you're done listening to it. Here we go. Dr. Rabbi Peter Tarlow and Nora Speakman, welcome both of you to the show. I don't often have two people at the same time. These are always fun, and they're a blast to edit usually as well. But well, welcome to you both at the show.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Steph. We're excited to be with you.
1: Yeah, I am as well. I'd like to start out the way that I start out almost every episode. And, and, and then Rabbi Tarlo. so you're the second rabbi that I've spoken with on the show, but probably in a handful of rabbis that I've spoken with, period. There's not a a lot of rabbis where I'm at here in the Blue Ridge Parkways. It's good to speak to someone uh, that can come from a different point of view, uh, which I think is is rare. Thank you. Tell us a bit about you. For those that are listening, they're like, okay, so so who is this person? Um, what would you want people to know about you? What, what makes you tick? What makes you you?
0: Well, I'm probably your more unusual rabbi. I actually, I would say I live a legally double life. But in reality, I live a, like, maybe five or six lives all at the same time. Um, I was a rabbi at Texas A&M University for about 35 years at their LL Foundation, working with students. I'm also the chaplain at the College Station Police Department. It's kind of in the same area. I am also the chaplain at the federal prison in Bryan, Texas, where I work with at a women's prison. And my main job is to encourage people not to come back to prison. <laughs> On the other side of my life, I, um my PhD specialty is in tourism security and in protecting visitors when they travel. And uh, last but not least, I'm a member of the faculty of Texas A&M Medical School.
1: What's your actual job? What do you really tell people if you only have 12 seconds in an elevator?
0: I'm probably retired and I try to be a good husband and father and grandfather.
1: <laughs> Fair fair enough. Uh, Nora, tell people a bit about you. What makes you tick? How do you be the best you?
2: Rabbi keeps me in line. You know, for me, Seth, honestly, Rabbi's life, as he has shared of many, many hats, I'll never forget when I first met him and asked him about all of these lives. And I said, what do you do when you get stressed? Remember this conversation, Rabbi?
0: Not really. Help me.
2: <laughs> when I asked you, what do you do when you get stressed? You said, I tell myself I'm being so foolish because I have more to be grateful for.
0: That's true. I I, I agree with myself. <laughs>
2: and so, so he taught me that, you know, I think that is... as as Americans, and certainly in the realm of Christianity, there is a difference between uh, I feel like I want to do this and knowing what is the right thing to do, which is what Rabbi has taught me through the beautiful branch of Judaism.
1: So you would call yourself a Jew or a follower of Judaism?
2: Sure. (laughs) And, 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 yes. But I would say that I, I was a Christian, if you want to say, quote unquote Christian, for most of my life. And I will tell you that I learned more about what even that was through Rabbi Tarlow.
1: Hmm. Let me defer to you there, Rabbi. Well, actually, yeah. So I have some follow-up questions from your little intro there, but right. I'll get back to those. So when you hear Nora say that, like, what does that mean? How can... How can a Christian learn more about Christianity through a lens of Judaism? Well, really,
0: to a great extent, Christianity, pure Christianity, is part of Judaism. It's only in the fourth century that Christianity split off and really took a facade of Judaism and mixed it with uh, Greek polytheism to create sort of a new religion. But I can't believe Jesus would want to be a Christian. I would think he would want to be a Jew. He lived a Jewish life. He followed Jewish principles. If you go through what Christians call the New Testament, all of the uplifting literature in that is really from classical Judaism, be it the Midrashic literature, the Talmudic literature, or the biblical literature. So it seems to me you really can't be a Christian, whatever that means, if you don't know your roots. It's kind of like saying, I want to be myself, but I don't want to know who my parents were.
2: (laughs) <laughs> I <don't. laughs>
1: um, well, I mean, I've been a, a kid before, and I think I would. There's some honesty in that. Of I don't think anybody wants to hear the truth about what their parents were, because I know as I get older and I realize how much smarter my parents were, and also dumber in some places. And I'm sure I'll get there as well. I don't necessarily like those truths, if that makes any sense. So if we take that metaphor and we break it closer to faith. What do we do with those things when when it's extremely uncomfortable?
0: We learn to live with them. (laughs) Just like my mother is almost 100 years old and it's very difficult. There's a Jewish saying that people with a lot of vinegar live long and she could be a vinegar back factory, but that doesn't mean I get rid of her. It means that I have to learn to live with it and try to figure out those things that make me uncomfortable. Why do they make me uncomfortable? And what is God's lesson and
1: being uncomfortable and learning how to deal with it. Uh, Follow-up questions from your intro. So I want to make sure, I I was writing everything down. So chaplain at College Station, chaplain at a Texas prison. Uh, You said a female prison or just penal prison? I wasn't sure I heard that right.
0: So I'm the police chaplain here in College Station. Mm -hmm. Also uh, one of the chaplains at the U.S. Federal Prison. It's um, a camp, a prison camp for uh, females in Bryan, Texas. I teach at our medical school. I lecture all over the world on tourism security, and I write books. And I was a rabbi for many years here at Texas A&M University, Mm. and I also taught in the Department of Sociology. So I tell people, most people are in retirement, I'm in retirement with a D. (laughs)
1: You're exhausted. You're exhausted, but you still do seven things. So you said you encourage people not to come back to prison do you do you find that you're successful as a chaplain in that role or is that uh, a fight against the ocean?
0: Uh, it depends. Some people, it is successful. Some people, it is a fight against the ocean. If you're successful, then they've learned whatever lesson it is. They have taken something away from it and they have moved on to a new stage of their life. Those who've learned nothing often come back. Those who've learned something never come back.
1: Mm. Yes, yeah, so it's all about the lessons that you, or the, I guess, what do they call it? Uh, the, the goal of prison should not be to incarcerate, but to, to educate. I think I've heard somebody say that somewhere. And if not, I, I made it up, but I don't think I did. I'm pretty sure those aren't my words.
0: No, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're right. Um, you know, the whole concept of, of prisons that were there is there's many lessons that you can learn in a prison, how to get along with people you don't like,
2: mm-hmm.
0: how to share food when you really would prefer not to. How to learn to be a little bit more humble. How to learn to find ways to use time creatively when you have too much time. Hmm. How not to live a life that's basically the movie Groundhog Day, where every day is the same. Hmm. So lessons are not only in books, but they're also in life. And you have to be smart enough to learn those lessons.
1: Nora, question for you. So you graciously... Gave me some some nice preface material uh, for this evening, and in there though you said something that caused me to almost reply to the email with a question, and I realized why would Mm -hmm. I do this? Because I could just ask you without any ability to prepare ahead of time. Because that's so nice of me. But you had (laughs) you had said um, that one of the things that's been powerful for you is that you know this rabbi has taught you how to not read the text forward because you know the story and allow the text to stand on its own. And so I'd like to define both of those. Like, what do you mean by that? And when you say text, are you talking about the Christian Bible, the Catholic Bible, the Jewish Bible? The what, what are we talking about when we say text? And then what kind of, what does that mean? Not reading it forward.
2: So I think text for me can be anything that becomes a rote for us, regardless of what version or what, if you're, you're, You're following Buddhism. It doesn't matter. If we become so familiar that it becomes strictly a regurgitation of memory, then it's no longer feeding us anything. So I remember when I first met Rabbi and I would say, you know, in this story where pain kills Abel and blah, 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 you know, and he's saying, hold on. He would say, go back to the context. What are the lessons right in front of you without thinking? Because you know the rest of the story, you know what happens next, you know the next chapter, and so there's so much in that stuff. Because if you study, for example, the Hebrew text, uh, the Torah, you would know that they don't have the same chapters that we do. We did that in Christianity too. The Hebrew text there's is a beautiful flow. That makes more sense when you read it all together versus reading it the way we do, quoting chapter and verse. It is more of a powerful narrative that is truly as it was supposed to be taught by oral tradition, not by memorizing it. So, for example, in Genesis, it says that God told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we often will say the fruit because later Eve says, well, he said not to take the fruit. So there's so much even wisdom in, okay, well, what is the tree? What does that represent in our life? And so this rabbinical understanding is, what do you think about it? And as Rabbi said with the Midrashic text, every dialogue matters rather than having one absolute answer.
1: Rabbi, do you agree? Because she said that she got that from you. So I want to make sure that we're, we're yeah. all on the same page. Yeah.
2: No, we are.
0: Um, I think there are two other just basic things that would help. One, Hebrew is a verbal language. English is a static language. Yes. So, for example, the word book in English refers to something that's static. The word Theta, it comes to it means every time you open the page, you get a different story. And so in Hebrew, all nouns are verbs, and that changes the entire way that you see things. To add to it, we don't vocalize the Hebrew text, which means that you can read each word multiple ways within context, and because there are no, there's no punctuation, it's kind of li- like reading a García Márquez um, novel, you don't really know where that verse begins and ends. Therefore, it's a never-ending flow, which has story and story and story and story. So if you think you know it, you don't know it. Hmm. It's only when you know you don't know it that you'll be getting closer to beginning to know it. Example, Nora spoke about the tree of life. Well, the word tree of knowledge in Hebrew, unless you understand that the word "yenda" means carnal knowledge, not to and to a for. Well, that changes things. Or you need to ask the question, If God really didn't want you to eat of that tree, why did he put it in the middle of the garden? Why didn't he put it in the corner someplace where nobody would see it? Maybe the goal was to have us eat from it because you don't really grow up until you have a sense of the ability to choose. And until you ate from that tree, you know what? You had that inability. You would be a child forever. So what Eve is, in Hebrew, Eve means chava. Is, is she is the first liberator. She's the first one who introduces two key elements. One, the knowledge that every day would not be the same. I, mean, I remember I said I work at a federal prison. A federal prison is paradise. They feed you. They take care of you. Every day is the same. There are no challenges. If we lived in that type of paradise, we'd be in prison. But instead, Eve got us out of it and taught us something else. Without the gift of death, you would never create. You'd be like uh, a, uh, like my dog used to sit by the swimming pool every day doing nothing. But because we know our time is limited, we have to create. Hmm. And it's death that makes us partners with God.
1: I've read often that, uh, and I'm gonna not use death. I use different. So without any trauma or brokenness, there's just no room for. There's the, without any without any death at all. Uh, there's just no new no new life. Um, without yeah. that.
0: and the word for life, Chaba, the, the, Eve, means in Hebrew,
1: that which gives life. What is a person today that doesn't read uh, a scripture, any scripture, regardless of the religion, as a scroll or as an oral type tradition? Like, what am I supposed to do with the Bible sitting on my desk? Because I've got seven or eight of them here. Like, if the if the words and the syntax and the sentence structure was supposed to be more fluid, and it's not... Um, and the way that we train human beings to learn is two plus two is four. But in a Hebrew right. scripture, not written with syntax like that, I don't think that that would yeah. work. And I'm maybe speaking That's out right. of turn because I'm ignorant of this. How do I read in a better way?
0: Learn Hebrew. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, I I taught many years a course at Texas A&M in biblical philosophy. <laughs> and my students would always say to me, which translation should we bring? <laughs> And I would say, I don't care because they're all wrong. It doesn't matter. (laughs) And that's not because the translator is a liar. So in Italian, you do say to translate is to be treasonous. It's because you cannot take the Hebrew text and translate it into English. Mm -hmm. So people who are really interested need to take the time to learn the text and how it sets up the world and take the text for what it is not for what you want it to be. So my advice is really, with all due respect to English Bible, learn Hebrew. (laughs) And many Christians are learning Hebrew because of that.
1: Hmm. I know, I know so, so much little Hebrew. Um. I want to ask a Hebrew word because to be honest, I didn't look it up and I I probably know what it means. So I'm going to spell it because Nora, I don't know how to say this word. And if you want to say it, it's T-Z-E-D-A-C-H-A-H. What is Nora? What does that mean? And then, if either one of you could just break that apart a bit, Tadaka. Sure, is that what you're saying, say? sure, absolutely. Yes. I don't, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> yes.
2: Okay, Rabbi, so, so. I want you to explain it because it's beautiful. Okay. So, first of all,
0: every Hebrew word comes from a three-letter root. So you have to. So the root there is Tz or K, which is, which means righteousness. The dacha is to be righteous by being charitable. So you cannot be righteous if you're not. I know I have lots of friends that tell me, well, I don't have to give charity because I um, pay taxes. It's a ridiculous statement. Uh, taxes are what the government takes from you. But uh, charity is what you choose to give. But in Judaism, it, the English word charity comes from the word "karitas," meaning a gift, something I want to do. And Judaism, to be charitable, is not what you want to do. It's what you ought to do.
1: It's the obligation of helping your fellow human being. Nora, what would you add, if, if anything, to that? I
2: think that what I would add is, is, as I've learned from Rabbi, and that is growing up in Christianity and understanding it, I don't know if it's that we put such a, almost like you're supposed to be impoverished, especially if you're serving in ministry. I don't know where that comes from, but it seems like it feels like that's what is sort of presented. And I think that what I've gleaned from Rabbi is you have to be pragmatic with your finances and it isn't to give everywhere you feel like it. But I think it's, it's, it's knowing that if we all were to be aware of our fellow man and community, we would be living out what it does say in Torah or Old Testament. And that is that we wouldn't have all of the issues in the labels and all of this. uh, What do we do with the homeless kind of a thing? Because I think that people would take more responsibility across the board. Do you think that's true, Rabbi, as I'm describing it or trying to?
0: (laughs) I I think that Tzedakah is not just, giving of money it's also right. giving of your. and lots of people give of themselves in lots of ways but the uh, reality is is that the earth was not made specifically for you it was made for all of us and we need to learn to live with each other as much of the we as we are of the I.
2: yes
1: i want to ask you a question that i've always wanted to ask um, a rabbi and since there's not one close i've been unable to so what is... You can always call me. It's okay. Uh, I will. I've got your number now. I'm going to do it. Um, all right. <laughs> uh, so for you, not necessarily for where you worship or for those yeah. that you have influence over, for you, what is your relationship to to what Christians would call you know Jesus Christ? Like what is your relationship or what is... A, a, and then bigger than that, what is kind of the Jewish relationship to that? Because I don't get to have that talk all that often.
0: Yeah, I guess it would be the same as if I asked you the question, what is your relationship to Buddha or Mohammed?
1: Mm.
0: You're coming out of a Christian perspective. Uh-huh. So in your world, everything centers around Christianity. But in my world, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, they're all foreign religions. Mm. So just like you have no relationship, you, you're not mean, you don't have anything to hurt, but you have no relationship to Mohammed. In the same way, I have no relationship to Jesus.
1: Okay. I wasn't expecting but I like it. I, I just wasn't expecting the answer, so I didn't have a follow-up there. I just, um, one of, it's one of those questions I've always wanted to ask.
0: But think about it, that when the question tells you a lot about where your thinking is, mm-hmm. and others, you, the fact that that formated that question tells you your thinking is Christian-centered
3: mm-hmm.
0: rather than human-centered. So, you know, I appreciate Christianity for what it is. I appreciate Islam for what it is. I appreciate Buddhism for what it is. Each one of those are independent thought systems. They're not necessarily mine, but they're independent thought systems. And I accept that if a Christian gets great comfort from Christianity, great. If a Muslim gets great comfort from Islam, great. If a Buddhist gets great comfort from Buddhism, great. I get great comfort from Judaism because it's the culture, the religion, the thought process, Of my
1: people. Nor, I'd ask you the same question. Um, Mostly because of what you said earlier when I asked you, what are you? And you're like, sure, why not? So what is kind of your relationship there?
2: So I've been putting together the beginning of a book. Jesus is a guy I knew is the (laughs) title. And, And the reason is, is because I think, honestly, I learned more about the person of Jesus through studying Judaism, then I knew practicing hardcore Christianity. And I think that we only learn what is taught to us, but we don't go beyond that. And we don't, it's almost for me, any religion sometimes can be more of an identity and sort of a membership club versus understanding what that is really supposed to be at all. And so so I think that I've been grateful to have rabbi in my life and others that have spoken into it to help me sort of, as we like to say in Christianity, deconstruct mm-hmm. uh, and, and reconstruct a formation of something foundational that we weren't given as an oath, or something like that, but it's truly coming from within, and so that's where I'm at.
1: I have a question. From what Nora tells me, and a lot of this is new to me, I just know so precious little about the practice of Judaism. Is it true that it is the only Abrahamic religion that doesn't really proselytize its faith? Which is probably why I don't know a lot, um, if true, because there's no interest in, I guess, conversion? Or am I saying that wrong?
0: It probably was some proselytization 2,000 years ago, which is probably where the Christians got it. But so many Christians were converting to Judaism in the fourth century that the church got scared and told the rabbis, if you proselytize, we'll take your head off. In which case they said, oh, we don't really proselytize. Um, Mm -hmm. On the other hand, today, Judaism is kind of a live and let live religion. So if you're happy with who you are, I don't want to change you. That's perfectly okay. On the other hand, we do see especially a reawakening of people who were forced to convert to Christianity. That's especially true in the Latin world, Latino world, Mm. and many of those people are finding their way back to Judaism. So that's kind of changing the demographic of who we are for the better. And often we end up with people who become interested in Judaism either for one or two reasons. They discover their family once was Jewish and was forced to convert, or we see it especially true among highly educated people who find Judaism to be extremely rational, logical. And Judaism is based on action rather than so much on belief. And Christianity, I always tell people, the key to Christianity is belief, and actions give profundity to that belief. In Judaism, the key is action, and then your beliefs add profundity to your action. Hmm. So it's a different way of seeing the world.
1: I like that. Although I will say, as I talk to many people, I will, I will uh, go round and round with many Christians that just say they're Christians but don't act as such. And so I, I think I right. would mirror that. Um, I, and I think there's a big push towards that. And not only Christianity, also I've seen that in some friends that are of uh, you know Muslim faith that are the same. Yeah. The same mindset, yeah. which is, I, I think, it makes things uncomfortable. But I think yeah. it's a progression forward. You brought up the fourth century twice, and so can you give me some examples about kind of that schism? Is the wrong word, but I don't have a better word of kind of what the, what was happening there.
0: Well, remember in the during the Roman occupation, especially in the what Christians would call the first century, for us it would be about the thirty fourth century, but <laughs> we'll use your terminology. <laughs> The was um, <laughs> you had a major revolt against Rome, and the Romans had two like normal in all societies, they were both fascinated and hated their enemies. They should have conquered Judea in about three days, it would have been kind of like the United States, Russia, Germany, England, France against Luxembourg, instead. The revolt was so successful, even though they failed in the end, that the Romans had to bring soldiers as far away as Scotland in order to put it down. So the Jewish world was always fascinating to the Romans. Why is it that this little people at the tucked away in the corner of the uh, Mediterranean was able to withstand the total power of the biggest empire the world had ever known? And that led eventually to sort of a kind of understanding. Now, eventually, some people started to accept Christianity, who were not Jewish. They were definitely uh, Gentiles, and they really started pulling through a lot of Greek mythology into their Christianity. Mm -hmm. You see the second stage of that in the Reformation in the 16th century. But in this period, you're going to have the Council of uh, Nicene. Uh, They take a vote on is Jesus God or not. I think Jesus wins by four votes, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it was a very narrow vote. And uh, you had this huge schism. And that's when Christianity really separates itself from Judaism. But on top of that, in order to justify themselves, they enter for the first time into a world of anti-Semitism. Mm. That anti-Semitism mm. will manifest itself all the way through the, up to the 20th century and with periods of quiescence and periods of, of war. But that has been a struggle for Christians. Christianity has had two struggles. One, the struggle of faith versus action. For example, Protestantism puts more emphasis on faith. Catholicism puts more emphasis on sort of a melange of the two. But secondly, what is its relationship to the Jewish people? On some level, Christians have resented it because we gave you Jesus. On the other hand, Christians have had a problem. The only people who knew Jesus said, no, that's not what we mean. You misinterpret it. And so there's this uncomfortableness within Christianity of where it stands. And that's not a Jewish problem. That's a Christian problem. That's something that Christians are still trying to work out for themselves. Who are we? What are we? What is our role? What is our background? How did we get here? Those are, that's not for me to answer, but that's for Christians to answer. But but those are challenges. And the people who create those challenges are the Jewish people. Our existence is therefore a challenge to Christians.
1: You think that's what most Christians would say? The Jewish existence is a challenge to Christianity?
0: No, I don't think so. I think probably theologians would say it. Oh. I think, one, the average Jew or Christian really doesn't do a lot of deep thinking about his or her religion. They just do it. So I think you really have, just like I doubt the average Christian thinks faith versus action. But the theologians did, right? I mean, you had a huge fight between the Catholic Church and Martin Luther King, uh, and Martin Luther in Germany, when he puts uh, his, his uh, uh, demands on, on the church door and, and nails them there. And he says, no, actions don't count. Only faith counts. That's, uh, th- that's a struggle that takes place in the Christian world.
1: I saw a meme today that I almost posted, but I didn't feel like getting in an argument today on Facebook that had Martin Luther. And all it said was that it had a picture of Luther. Um, and it was, well, it was taken from, I don't know if either of you watch football. And I feel like being that you're both in Texas, you must. I'm also from Texas. And so football is literally in my DNA. Um, and that's the wrong way to use the word literally, but I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to edit it because I'm the one editing it. Um, and and um, I like that. Yeah. I'm just not, I'll say that I will, and then I, I'll forget. But there was a, at the Georgia Notre Dame game, someone held up on game day a picture of Martin Luther. And it took me a long time to realize why that was so funny. And about 30 minutes later, I'm like, oh, clever. Somebody. Is really is really clever here. And then the the meme that I saw today was Martin Luther. I believe in inerrancy so much that I'd like to throw out a few books of the Bible, which really makes me laugh quite a quite a bit as he wanted to redact everything. Um, so I want to I want to draw back down. So how were Christians con- you, you you referenced earlier Christians converting to Judaism or the intermingling of the two in the fourth century and how they had like threatened beheading? Like, what did that what did that look like?
0: There were no Christians until the Council of Nicaea. okay? So there were, you might call it Jesusites. Now, there's some Jews who saw Jesus as a potential Messiah. Now, you have to be really careful because the Christian word Messiah and the Hebrew word Messiah are very different. So basically, the Messiah would be a successful politician who uh, would help bring back the Jewish people who were scattered to the land of Israel. Greeks... Intermingle that with the idea of uh, Jupiter and eventually come up with Jesus as a God. But that's a big argument between the Jesusites and what eventually will become the Christians. And, and that only takes place in the middle of the 4th century. But I don't want to lecture Christians on Christianity. Because that seems kind of unfair.
1: No, no, that's fine. So I will say my, my church history is lacking. And you don't know me well, but the way my brain works, I have so many more questions. And I'm going to have to buy 100 more books, and this will probably cause an argument with me and my wife. And it's definitely going to be the two of you's fault because I'm going to add books to the library and I'm going to blame you both, and it'll, it'll be fine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I understand. I had to, when I retired, I had to give away over 10,000 books. That hurts me. And I still, and it hurts me too. It hurts me <laughs> too. Tr- I put another 6,000 in my son's attic. Store, and oh I have another five thousand. My and now I only read books electronically because we have no more space.
1: <laughs> I read <laughs> books electronically because I don't have to have evidence that I have them. I can I can hide yeah, I, them.
0: Yes,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, I read them because we we're out of space. We're literally that's it. I need to buy a new house
1: <laughs> for your books. Uh, you just need to buy a library yeah. with a bedroom is, is what you, is yeah. what is what you need. Yeah. I I can't make my mind stop spinning about the questions, I have, but it it, it will derail. I want, um, I want to talk a bit about uh, just the posture of a, a Jewish faith in the politically charged world, especially of Texas that we live in now. Uh, I don't know when this will air, but that's not going away. Oh, getting so, worse. Yeah, it's. I don't know how it cannot get any the bar is really low. Uh, it's becoming lower and eventually it will only be able to get better. I'm not even sure what that looks like, but the bar continues to limbo to the floor. And I don't know where it yeah. stops eventually when it's flush, I guess. But what is the posture of a Jewish faith living inside what I will call an empire of America? You know, the strongest, I can use it as an anagram for Babylon or something like that. Like what is the posture yeah. for Judaism Living in America. Oh, I'm going to try to understand the word posture, but the position. Yeah, that's fine. I
0: think most. I think most Jews feel very comfortable in America currently, and of course, you can never tell what will be in the future. But currently, I would say that this being a minority in a gentle country is very good. Being a minority in a country that is hostile or cruel is very bad. On the whole, the American people have always been a gentle people. My family's been here for hundreds of years. My first language is English. My parents' language is English. My grandparents' language is English. My great-grandparents' language is English. You know, as far back as I can remember. And even at probably the worst time in the world, there are only really two times that I say Jews ever felt uncomfortable in this country. One was in the Civil War. Ulysses Grant signed a decree expelling the Jewish population of Memphis Tennessee. He was immediately overridden by President Lincoln and called to task. And eventually he apologizes profoundly. He actually ended up being a really great president, Grant, but he did that without really thinking. So, but that was definitely a low point. It didn't last long. And Lincoln, you know, put in stop to like as quickly as he found out about it. I think the other time that probably people felt a little bit uncomfortable and not with Americans, but with we didn't know what would happen, was World War II. Hmm. Suppose Hitler had one. That would have been a different situation. But the nice thing is that we were in it with everybody else. It was a national fight for survival. But I think, you know, uh, there, there certainly is anti-Semitism. I'm not going to say there wasn't. I rem- You may remember uh, Arthur Godfrey. Uh, he was an entertainer when I was a child. And... When we went Cub Scouts to meet him in Teterboro Airport in, in, in New Jersey, he would not allow Jewish Cub Scouts. He would not shake their hand, and he had a sign over his house saying, "No blacks, Jews. Well, he used a much worse word for blacks. No blacks, Jews, or dogs permitted." So I remember that, you know, as a child. But that was the exception. You know, it wasn't the norm. Probably the only time you really feel uncomfortable is Christmas. I, I always tell people the favorite day of most Jewish children is December 26th. And they say, why? I say, because you don't have to deal with Christmas for another year. <laughs> and <laughs> a lot of Christians are starting to agree with me. It, it's interesting.
1: I agree with you. I'm, I'm really upset yes. that on Columbus Day, it will already be Christmas everywhere that I turn. Yes. And,
0: and, and it seems to me as a non-Christian that Christmas is all about going into bankruptcy and killing trees. I, when I ask people what the meaning of it is, they tell me to spend money. I go, mm-hmm. that's quite a holiday. Where's the religiosity in this? But certainly in the public schools where they force you to sing Christmas carol, that's kind of uncomfortable. Today, it's not like it was when I was a child. Today, schools tend to try to be much more inclusive one way or the other. But 50 years ago or 40 years ago, it wasn't so inclusive. I do think, though, they were overwhelmed by Christmas. You know, it's, it's just... um and I and most of my Christian friends feel overwhelmed by Christmas. I have lots of friends who are ministers and priests, and they can't wait for the holiday to be over because it's been so commercialized.
1: I I I fully agree, Nora. Do you agree? I I'm I'm, I'm not a fan. I maybe get that. I mean, as a Christian, I like Christmas, and I emphasize the words that way on purpose, but the rest of the stuff, God, it annoys me so much, but I don't even like to celebrate my birthday. Really? Like days don't matter to me. Like it's no. the anniversary of the sun orbiting the day that I was born. Yay. We, yeah. we did it. <laughs> we did it. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't stand it at all. I feel like often, and where and I want your opinion on this. I feel like often the way that we talk about scriptures, we sanitize it to the Prince of Egypt of the scripture. It doesn't really matter what we're talking about. It's, it's always the Prince of Egypt. Um, it's, yes. it's, 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 there's no blood here. It's, it's definitely not the Deadpool version of scripture. I'm curious. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> That's when, you know, you've watched the movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a great movie. Yes. Yeah. The sarcasm level is 127% in that movie. I love it. <laughs> um, so I'm curious mm-hmm. as to your thoughts on why, and then how would you kind of you combat that in in faith as you engage with people of, of i guess of both faiths or of any faith really because i don't think we're the only one that sanitizes it mm. but we do it frequently very frequently
2: you know i think it's a disservice and especially as i learned as rabbi says you have to learn hebrew and i began down this path of trying to learn hebrew but also learning greek you know for the new testament back then, and to bring understanding because what I came to realize is that the translators, especially in rabbi will speak to this. They're human. They're men. They're (laughs) they're. Why do we think suddenly because they're translating something that is going to be uh, revered that they would not make mistakes or not put their bias into it. Mm. And so when you look at it through that lens and, and, and I think that sometimes we can pedestalize pastors we pedestalize even the bible and we forget just like the you know glenn i think of his what if project we have to be willing to see that we create something we want to worship rather than again allowing it to stand on its own and get get the full breath of it and maybe like it or not like
1: it and it's okay i'm curious your thoughts on that rabbi on the Clorox sanitation of of scripture.
0: Well, if you read Hebrew, you don't have to worry about sanitizing it. But I don't.
1: (laughs) We've been over this. I know
0: what I'm saying is there's two reasons against translation. One is that no two languages can say quite the same thing. Mm -hmm. In English, everything is past, present, future. In classical Hebrew, everything is ended, not ended, not begun, or did begin. Uh, it's a completely different verbal sense. So the moment you translate, you're misinterpreting. Uh, yes. But on top of that, Hebrew is very. It doesn't hide things. In other words, for example, I I remember seeing the Christian word um, God wax verily or God vex verily. It means God's really angry. The Hebrew is God was pissed off. Hmm. <laughs> But when they, in English, you don't like dirty words. or you're, the, the whole concept of a dirty word or to believe that sex is dirty is a Christian concept. That's right. It's not a Jewish concept. That's right. So right away, the moment you translate, you sanitize what you're doing is you're Christianizing. You're taking a text and forcing it into a different culture. Yes. Hmm. And in English, there's many, many words that are sexual, that are considered to be improper, or dirty, or swear words, they're not in Hebrew. If it's human, and God made us, then everything we do in and every, and every part of our body is a gift of God.
1: How do I learn Hebrew then? Like, actual conversation, not a leading one. If I wanted to, so I'm 37, yeah. I have a limited amount of time, because I have three human beings that depend on me.
0: The nice thing about <laughs> Hebrew is that modern Hebrew and Biblical Hebrew are basically the same language. The Hebrew spoken in Israel is much closer to the Hebrew that Moses would have spoken than English is to the time of the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big advantage. And secondly, Hebrew is absolutely mathematical and logical. The only difference between modern Hebrew and classical in Hebrew, there are more words. But even the words are derived from ancient words. For example, the word for jet plane in modern Hebrew, matos, comes from the verb latus to fly like an angel the machine that makes you fly like an angel a jet plane. Beautiful. and then from that we get all the you know it, stuff like that uh, Ramzo uh, a red light in hebrew is the light that winks at you that gives you a hint if you should go or not <laughs> so, so so every word in the hebrew language is connected to a biblical word but i would think maybe there's maybe some great programs on the web i mean you know there are um, I don't know if you're close to a university, but they may have a course. I, you sounded like there's no real. Usually, most Jewish centers will have a, a Hebrew course, but you may be far from that.
1: So I'm in. I'm right outside Charlottesville, but as I googled, well, there is there is not a lot. But I'm four, 35 minutes, 40 minutes west of Charlottesville. I'm, I'm closer.
2: Okay.
0: Oh well, 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 we know there's two synagogues in Charlottesville.
1: Okay, I just have to dig deeper. Um, I know there's one yeah. in Crozet, and every time I drove by. And Crozet's on the way to Charlottesville. Uh, every time I drive by, there's ne- the doors are uh, there's nobody there. Um, so I don't well, you know. know I don't know if when you they're call there.
0: Them or find, yeah, call them or find out. You know when they meet, or if you can speak to somebody. But we definitely know that there's an active congregation in Charlottesville. Okay, i You happen. remember when they had the crisis? You remember when they had the crisis in Charlottesville with the
1: the Unite the Right rally?
0: Yeah, about the statue
1: that oh, you oh, remember yeah.
0: that, mm-hmm. that that that. It went right past one of the synagogues, and that became a big deal.
1: Yeah, I remember that day vividly. We were supposed to go to the swimming pool that day uh, to play, and we instead stayed here and watched The Madness and then eventually played outside on the swing set because yeah. why am I going to watch this?
0: So, so that's why we know that there has to be a synagogue in Charlottesville.
1: Nora tells me that you somehow or another have a relationship to the Pope, and I'm curious what that looks like.
0: It's not that I have a relationship. The Pope has very close relationship to the Jewish community. Okay. The Pope's best friend in Argentina is a rabbi in Argentina, and um, they wrote two books together. Mm-hmm. And um, this particular Pope, who's really very open to everybody, um, invited all the European rabbis last year for Hanukkah. And they said, "Well, we'd have a real problem going to the Vatican because what would we eat?" And he said, "Not to worry, we have a kosher kitchen." So, <laughs> so th- this Pope is not the same as say Pope's. 200 years ago <laughs> same name very different game uh but he he i would actually say ever since vatican there has been a major shift within the catholic world for the better that's a compliment yes.
1: mm. one of my favorite people that i've learned about vatican II from is um yeah paul knitter he was there as a as a small like uh what's the word he was working in the Vatican as someone that would go fetch the scrolls and whatnot for the bishops that were there that were voting on things, um, and I, uh, and so he was under. Uh, he's one of the last people that studied under. Gosh, the name escapes me. The book's too far away for me to go get. I don't remember the page number, uh, but he's he'd said, he said he wrote a book about um, you know without Buddha he could not be Christian as he starts to blend in.
2: Oh, I remember. Yes.
1: Yes, yeah, so I just can't remember the name of the of the of the the person that he was studying under but I liked the way that he, he blended face together there. What are those books that were written together with, with the, um, with the rabbi and with, and with the Pope?
0: You can look them up. I don't remember their names anymore. It, it, um, I remember seeing it at the time and thinking, oh, isn't this, and then I kind of,
1: you know, my mind
0: moved on to the next thing.
3: Hmm.
1: All right. So I want to say two things in closing, nor am I have to have you back. There's a lot more there that we didn't talk about. And I want to, I want to talk about it. So, we um we're gonna make that happen, and so I want to ask you both the same question. Um, as we engage into the next season in America, which is going to be fun, uh, as we begin to impeach the president. Apparently today, uh, right or wrong, that's going to be fun. Yeah. Um. That that's a thing. Yeah,
0: so understand, it's an inquiry into impeachment, which does not exist in the Constitution. So it's kind of a political ploy.
1: Well, everything's a political ploy this this time of year. <laughs> yeah. That's not going away, and that animosity right. is not going away. And so what is one thing, that, regardless of your faith, that you both think we could do to actually be better? To to, to I'll play on what you said earlier, Rabbi, to, to not just have faith that things are whatever, you know, Republicans are going to fix it or the blue button is going to fix it, um, to, but to have action, like to have a faith that even really matters to, of having um, a faith or a practice or a religion. Like what would be one thing that you would install or you would advise people that you were chaplaining or that you were talking to, Nora, you know, that would that could possibly help move the ball forward down that field?
0: Uh, I probably would quote Micah to love justice, do righteously and walk humbly with your God. Mm. Calm down, Mm. be humble.
2: I love that. And I think I would, I would say, because if, and Rabbi knows this, he knows my husband and I, and he knows how different we are. (laughs) So and I say that laughing out loud because, Rabbi, you know all the conversations that are probably running through your head too. But I would say to listen, but listen not to prosecute, listen to understand.
1: Rabbi, if people want to have tourism security from you or anything else from you, where would you send them?
0: They can write to me at P. Tarlo. That's P. That's Peter. Tarlow is T-S in Texas. A-R-L-O-W at tourismandmore, dot com, And they can also, if they want to get my weekly Bible portion in both English and Spanish, they can just write to me and tell me they're interested in that.
1: Side question. How many languages do you know? We're at English, we're at Spanish, we're at Hebrew.
0: You yes. said another
1: word earlier. You said melange, which I think that's French. So how many yes. actual languages do you know? Out of five. That's ridiculous. You're ridiculous.
2: No, no, no. I'll add this real quick. Rabbi had to go to France and said, I said, Rabbi, what are you doing? And he said, I'm learning French. When do you go? Next week? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's Rabbi. Nora, where would you point people to? For me? Mm-hmm. Um, what?
2: what? <laughs> Noraspeakman.com mm-hmm. is where they can find everything they want to know, and
1: then some. Thank you both so much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. I was really challenged by Rabbi um, and by Nora that I don't know really any Hebrew. The fact that I can't pronounce a Hebrew word really makes me mad. And so I'm going to begin doing that. I have no idea how to start. I have found a few different resources to do that. And I told my family actually at dinner last night, or at least my wife, I think I'm going to learn Hebrew because it matters for at least my faith. Really looking forward to seeing what I learn, how I hear from God differently as I read the Bible and scripture in the language that it was actually written in or at least try to and so if that is something that interests you if it's something that you've done let me know how you did it i need some resources i need some help let's crowdsource that i don't even know where to begin and i could google it but sometimes that takes you down a rabbit hole that you're just not really prepared to mess with i'm going to do that it's going to be good next week what you will hear is a conversation that i really like about a book that deeply challenged me especially as we walk into the political election and so Uh, Professor Soong Chong Ra, along with Mark Charles, both of those have been past guests, and Mark, if you're not aware of, is currently running for president, which is amazing. And I love what he has to say about reconciliation and conciliation and what it means to actually be for all the people. He's doing some big things. But his book, along with Professor Soong Chong Ra, it's called Unsettling Truths. I really think, really, really, really think that you're gonna enjoy it. I'm actually gonna try something a bit different this week. I want to leave you with a little teaser of what you will hear next week. I can't wait for you to come back next week and hear the remainder. Here we are. Be blessed, everybody. The history of our country, uh, once you get past the, you know, McLaughlin Hill approved literature for eighth grade history class Hmm. is, is crazy. So mm. I want to begin with right towards the beginning of the book, you talk about and 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 if it's all right, I'd like to quote a few places. I, I actually don't remember when the book is sure. out, um, but by the time the book is out, I won't be I won't be plagiarizing this. So okay, there is a part where y'all talk about the power of metaphors, and you mm. talk about George Lakoff and assert that metaphors, you know, a partic- are a form of communication, and if they impact the formation of social reality and the institutions Mm -hmm. that function in that society. And so I want you to break those two apart. So what do we mean when we mean like a social metaphor impacting social reality? Like what does that actually mean for someone not engaged in that type of thought process?
3: Sure. So I'm trying to engage um, how social reality comes into being, and what is the social reality, the cultural milieu that we live in. And uh, there's significant work on this in sociology circles. Probably the, the, the landmark work was by Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman, where they talk about three different factors that form social reality. And one of the key factors, and the language I'm using is a little bit different from Berger and Luckman's language, what Berger and Luckman call internalization, um, I use the word narrative. And narratives are the stories, the metaphors, the imagination that gets embedded or embodied or internalized within our society and within the individuals that we play out over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, and so I use the example that systems and structures might actually come and go at times, like a system and structure of slavery. And then once slavery as an institution is broken down, it's replaced by another institution, in this case, Jim Crow. And then even when Jim Crow is torn down, it's replaced by another institution, the new Jim Crow. So you have three systems that are operating essentially the same way. They are oppressive toward people of color, particularly African-Americans. So you have these systems that you thought you were overcoming. You thought you were tearing down. You thought you were breaking down. But what you didn't deal with were the narratives that were fueling these systems. And so what I point out is that we can keep tearing down these systems. If you don't deal with the fuel that drove these systems in the first place, what I identify as narratives, um, you're going to end up rebuilding the system or reworking the system over and over again. And so how are narratives formed is the question that's being asked here in this particular chapter. Narratives are formed through the social imagination.